1: 98.1 FM in the Los
2: Angeles Basin. Is that correct? Is that the Los Angeles Basin, Patrick? I mean, I don't know if I'd call it a basin, but we're in Los Angeles. Well, Los Angeles County. Well, I think that's a basin. I mean, I, I mean I'm mean, i not a, uh, a geography guy, so I wouldn't really know exactly. But I'll take your word for it. Well, so everybody
1: that comes on this show, they don't understand why S. Brian is spelled A-S-K-B-R-I-E-N. And like today, we don't have an engineer. We replaced this with AI, which is what we're doing today for our show on AI. But uh, Mr. Engineer, uh, will you try to explain to this crowd of thousands and thousands and thousands of people why in the world you spell Brian with an E? Because everybody they know, they spell the name B-R-Y-A-N, B-R-I-A-N. But the only Brian they know... That's spelled with an E, is Mr. O'Brien, who's down at the Irish pub having a beer.
2: Oh, oh my. Well, there's a number of, well, kind of like themes of the Ask Brian show, and that's kind of why, you know, it's spelled with an E. One of them is engineer, which also engineers, because now there's two engineers on this show. It's not just myself, but also Emily as well. Because you a, couldn't do it yourself, you have to have help? Not at all. Oh, <laughs> Don't laugh, Emily. <laughs> no, but also E, also for Emily, because her name starts with an E, so that's a new one. Also, we have experts, because everybody that is brought onto the Aspirine show is an expert in their field. Experience is another one, because everybody is very experienced in what they do. Other ones we have is empathy, or in this case, the lack of empathy that he's showing towards me right now. Well, that's L-O-E. L-O-E. Lack of empathy. I mean, if you're going to go based on, like, just the abbreviation, sure, but empathy starts with an E. And one that you also have is enthusiasm and excitement! Go, go, go! <laughs> that too. And am I forgetting any other ones, or did we pretty much go, do we cover all those? Yeah, excellence, yeah, experts. Yep. Um, empathy. Energy. That was a new one. That's the one that Tracy likes to bring in. I, I usually give that for her.
1: Is that because you lack energy? Is that why? No, I have plenty another, of energy. Another another L-O-E. Lack of energy, lack of empathy. There's a lot of lacking. You know, we're a positive show, and we shouldn't be lacking
2: anything. You know, that's real low of you, by the way. Hail.
1: That's a, we're not the Ask Brian with an L. Without any further ado, how do you spell do?
2: A-D-I-E-U.
1: Why is that a word I like?
2: Because every single letter except for the D is a vowel.
1: Why do you like to talk in monotone? You're not very enthusiastic, (laughs)
2: excited, and you have lacking of energy. Uh, It's because I I have it literally down to a T. It's almost like clockwork. But T is not an E. That's true. I have it down
1: to the E and the U. All right. So we have a very special guest, and we have our co-host today. Co-host is Alex Grossman. Alex, are you there?
3: I am here, Mr. Brian Johnson and Mr. Patty and Miss Emily. How are you all?
1: Alex is a special guest special co-host, similar to like the, uh, I don't know, like the Johnny Carson show when Jay Leno would appear before before he started to appear every day. We have uh, our special co-host, Alex Grossman, and Ooh. a very, very, very special guest who's so excited, with the E, to be on our show. His name is Rajesh. Rajesh, are you there? Yes, sir. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Good. So uh, You hear that
3: excitement? That's incredible excitement right there. I, I was impressed.
1: I actually almost fell off backwards off my chair. Patrick, thank God you had some empathy <laughs> that protected me from falling on the floor. But otherwise, I would have been flat on my, uh, can't say it. But anyway, back to reality sometimes. So Rajesh, a couple of questions for you. What is the name of the company you have currently? It's called Lincode. And uh, Lincode, and what does Lincode do? Uh,
4: Lincode is primarily helping manufacturers leverage uh, AI and computer vision to automate some of their processes.
1: So, how is that different than having just computers or robots on the assembly line checking out products?
4: Absolutely, great question. So, robot does not have eyes to see; they all just have hands to move, and uh, they need some programmer to you know program them. But they cannot identify defects, or uh, you know, quality inspections cannot be done by robots. So AI with the computer vision, it's kind of an eye for the robots to help them identify what's the defects, and uh, then the robots eliminate the defecting out of the lines. So
1: if it doesn't see, how can it find out if there's a scratch on the glass or, or there's a problem?
4: How does, it, how does that help? How, how can it work? Yeah, so that is why we use cameras, and uh, we use cameras and our AI to assist the robots to identify those defects and um, move them out of the line.
1: Uh, and, and your primary market is what, to, uh, to manufacturers? Yeah, we primarily focus on manufacturing companies. Is there anything besides a manufacturer that might want a product like yours or service? Uh, of course.
4: There, there are a lot of industries which might be requiring a product like this. One of them, the immediate industry is warehousing, where um, a lot of packaging is involved. So uh, warehousing is one of the industries which might be requiring us. So how, how would your product work if you had a warehouse? So... You know, warehouse, you know, it's very important to identify what kind of defects are happening on the boxes before it's sent out to their respective destination. Defects like, you know, depressions or um, cutoff in the, you know, box or uh, label graphics not there or a barcode not fixed. So those are the kind of issues which, which can occur in a warehouse. Uh,
1: so does, um, is it a software or
4: what exactly is the wind is the code? Yeah, so we are primarily a software company, but we have actually integrated with various robots, conveyor systems on the factory, and uh, various other control panels and PLCs in the uh, manufacturers, manufacturer's side where we integrate with uh, Intelator software with, and then help the manufacturers to eliminate any kind of defects in their life.
1: So I don't know much about the product or the service, but what I, what I would think is okay, manufacturing is definitely a, a possibility here and a strong possibility. But I would also think uh, integration with robots or products that are used on the assembly lines and manufacturing lines, if you could get the software into those products, might be helpful. And since they've already got a connection with the manufacturers, that might be an angle. Have you thought about that?
4: Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's,
1: that's definitely one of the
4: uh, angles that you know, we have be you know, able to. And,
1: and, and how, how old is your company? We are technically four years old now. And how did you come up with the
4: idea for this company? And was it you or others? Uh, yeah, so we actually went to various manufacturers to identify what kind of challenges they have. After we heard you know, a couple of manufacturers coming to us and telling us, uh, can we solve this particular challenge? So after that, we thought, you know, if we can build a product for the entire industry, that will be better than just going as a service mode. So we went and, um, you know, spoke to about 100 to 150 factories in the U.S. and Europe. We asked them what are their top 10 challenges. So most of them said that, uh, 86% of them said that, you know, quality inspection is their biggest problem. And uh, the reason for that is the investments made on the technology for the quality inspections didn't give them the desired return on investment. And they were kind of annoyed with, uh, you know, the repeated investments on the quality inspection lines, but not still fully able to automate the inspections, basically. So that was the primary reason I found an opportunity to build something with the AI and computer vision, and uh, that's how
1: we set out. You know, that's a very, very strong approach to take, and a very likelihood of success is definitely higher when you try to figure out, when you try to solve a problem that people have. So I think that was actually, has a lot of foresight to actually go in, try to figure out, oh, there's a problem here, and then solve the problem for people. I mean. That's much different. Most businesses don't operate that way. Most businesses have more of an arrogant approach, which is we'll build a product, we'll build something that we think you need, and then try to sell it. You, you went from a completely different angle, I see, which is you said, hey, uh, you went to the, the people, and you found out what their problem was, and then you tried to solve it. I think that's a, that's a very good way of approaching things in business to actually find out uh, how to solve a problem that people have, as opposed to trying to maybe create something. Maybe a problem doesn't even exist. So I applaud you on that. Um, yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. No problem. Was it you or, or was it other people involved in your company to start?
4: So we have a, you know, a team of people uh, who are working on this. So I'm handling the sales and business development now. So we have a CTO who's taking care of the technology team. She's actually uh, worked with companies like Microsoft and ADP, and she actually takes care of the uh, technology in terms of um, building uh, products and product roadmap, basically.
1: Now, um, obviously, there's got to be a coder on the, on the team because of software. So is that your, was that you or is there somebody else on the team that, that actually built the, uh, the code for this?
4: Yeah, so we started off in the factory floor. So we got an opportunity to build our product right on the factory floor with one of our large automotive customers. So he was actually, um, you know, part supplier to some of the OEMs. So we had an opportunity to build our product right there. So we all went initially... I was also focused on the development, so we, we went along with the team. We identified uh, how the visual inspection is done currently, and then we used various tools to identify what are the issues, which is you know, why these manufacturers are disappointed with uh, technology you know, investments. And we figured that false calls was the biggest problem. Like, you know, the product was good, but it said bad, and the product was bad, and it said good, and it went to the customers. So those are the false calls you know, which they wanted to eradicate. And uh, we started to understand first why those false calls are occurring in the factory floor in the first place. We used various AI tools to identify that. And once we got the idea of, you know, why this kind, these kind of uh, issues are happening, then we set out, you know, building a solution specifically to do a false calls. So you can think of like this, like, you know, we are like an iPhone for a factory, where if you look at the iPhone's uh, hardware, it's, it's not like really big as uh, Samsung. So we are actually, you know, in in iPhone the AI controls your hardware specs, and that's why you are able to get a very good low light pictures, or even if you are shaky images, it fixes that. Fixes that. So AI does all of that job in your iPhone. So the same way we have built a tool which can actually handle manufacturers, uh, you know, issues of the false calls, and that way we have reduced false calls by eighty percent.
1: So actually, this goes into the similar question regarding percentages. So if you do not have the uh, link code product or service, okay, what is a typical quality assurance rate on a product and how much of an increase do you typically get by using the wind code?
4: Okay. So, in the current industry, you know, it's measured by uh, parts per million, they say. So, it means uh, if you scan one million parts in your assembly line, how many wrong calls you have. That's the measurement of how effective the inspection is happening. So, they had industry standard of 100 to 150 false calls, which is high enough for getting penalized by their, you know, up the chain uh, clients basically. So, so our objective was, you know, to you know have these false calls reduced. Now we are looking at zero to four ppm, which means you scan one million parts with our vision system, it's gonna give you 100% accuracy. So it's either zero uh, false calls or maximum we have seen is four false calls how can it
1: have such a high percentage? I mean, I, I get that in a million parks, you're going to have, you know, 50 to a hundred, whatever that, that makes sense to me, but zero to four, I mean, that is such a small number. I mean, I, I'm just astounded that, that it could be that high. What, what is your basis to determine the zero to four? Is that just based on, on the, on the companies that have been using your product so far, or
4: how, how do you come up with that? So today, you know, manufacturing is getting really competitive. And, um, OEMs no longer accept um, you know, any kind of a defects reaching them. Like, For example, if you take a large OEM like a Ford or a GM or any other large OEMs, they don't take their suppliers supplying them a defective part. So what happens is it affects their uh, you know, production plan. Let's say they're going to build 100 cars today and uh, if the supplier is giving him 10 uh, wrong products, then what it means is they'll have to wait for a good product to come from the supplier to have the You know, entire 10 card produced for that particular deal. So this, it hampers the OEM basically. So it's very, very, it's become very competitive. So it used, you know, a couple of years ago, 4 ppm was good. That was enough. Like you can supply 4 parts out of your entire shipment. But now it's becoming 0 ppm. So it's really getting competitive for manufacturers to, you know, making sure that whatever they supply to the OEMs, it has to be 100% accurate. Otherwise, you know, they're getting penalized. So because of which, they are focusing a lot on the quality aspects to make sure, you know, it reaches uh, with zero PPM. So our objective when we started building was this. Like, you know, our clients gave us the ultimatum that, you know, it has to be our uh, need. Otherwise, you know, technology is, again, a failure for us. And that's why we focused on uh, these aspects, identifying both kind of uh, uh, issues causing these false calls. And uh, we set out and uh, we fixed those uh, false calls first. And then we actually use the computation and AI to create a huge data model. So we had to make sure that we have a lot of data uh, to work with. And we cannot go to every customer and ask those many data, basically. Like we are talking about millions of data. So what we did was we went to each and every manufacturer of plastics, and uh, we took... Defect data from various manufacturers globally. So we have now a pile of 50 million in our data set. On top of that, we are building our model. So this gives us the accuracy level required on the floor for each customer. So eventually, we just take about 10 to 15 defect images from a factory floor when we deploy for that particular customer. So that sets us apart. Who are your competitors? Um, We have uh, two kind of competitors. One is um, traditional um, computer vision or machine vision kind of uh, companies. Conventional uh, companies, which is focused on the hardware cameras, so with like Cognex and Keyence, Cognex and Keyence have about 60% of the market share in the US. So Cognex is a US-based company doing about 900 million of revenue, and Keyence is about 6 uh, 6 billion revenue, and they're based out of Japan. And these are the industry leaders currently uh, when it comes to vision inspections in the floor. And there are a set of AI companies as well, and there's a lot of AI companies, you know, growing bl- uh, every day. So this 60% of market share is diluted now with the advent of all the AI companies. But this typical AI companies go on a generic approach of data science or a data a deep learning model. So deep learning, you need a lot of images. And that is where we, we are, uh, you know, better than them on the AI.
3: Alex, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. I'm what here. I, I, really, I really want to ask a few questions because what Linco is doing is pretty exciting from a manufacturing standpoint. I mean, I know a little bit about that, having run a, a few of these lines. But I'm interested because this this technology, really, you know, robotics and and getting the you know entire manufacturing process to a let's call it a more automated process. You know, a lot of people are a little upset about that because those low paying jobs tend to go away. But let's face it, if you want productivity you need to automate it. But one of the problems with automation is always exactly as you guys were talking about in the beginning, the barcodes on crooked, things are on upside down, you know, maybe there's a scratch in the surface, so it it ends up being a return. So I know that that's true with just about every industry, but there's this technology that I'm familiar with called machine vision, where they use cameras already and they're able to read and look for imperfections. But I'm interested in, for Rakesh, how you, decided that AI would be better at this rather than having the standards that machine vision has used before, like this is good, you know, this is a go, this is a no go. How does AI make that better?
4: Sure. That's a great question, Um, Alex. So, you know, machine vision uses a conventional or a very age old mechanism of identifying defects. So they use something called golden image template matching. So it just compares good and bad with uh, one single good or maybe Two or three images max, so it compares with these three images and then says, okay, this particular product is good or bad. So that's the basics of a conventional machine vision system, basically. Whereas AI is like, a, you know, AI. You know all very well that it's a machine learning, right? So a machine, you're teaching a machine about what's a good and what's bad, and then it it has its own intelligence, starts and recognizing even if it's not seen it before, it recognizes that yes, this is a good product or this is a bad product. So just to give you an example. If you teach a uh, machine what is a cat, it can identify CMAC cat, it can identify a normal cat, you know, a Persian cat. It can identify different varieties of cats. So that's the way, you know, it's something similar to a child, you know, you teach a few things, a uh, child learns as, it, as the child grows. The same way in machine learning, if you teach the computer with, you know, some data and then, and once it starts seeing every day, it keeps getting better and better and that's how it learns. So we understood that, you know, in manufacturing, when we went to these early customers and we talked to them uh, to understand what are their challenges. So we figured that this machine vision cameras are not effectively working for them. So that's primarily because this machine vision cameras, if you teach them in a specific way, the orientation cannot be changed. Even 30, de- 30 degrees of change in the orientation, machine vision will throw it as an error, basically. So it won't understand that there is a change. And um, even detecting similar colors stacked over each other, they were not detecting. So these are the constraints of a machine vision technology. So it's not because the you know, companies which are manufacturing, they were bad, but the technology was uh, not mature enough. But AI was you know, going to supersede that and um, you know clear those problems. Because in AI, you're teaching what is a product. So however you keep, whatever the orientation you're going to keep, it's going to work. So from a
3: productivity standpoint, then, what, what I'm hearing you say is that in a line, you bring up a line and it's actually going to get better over time because of the AI learning. And so you're going to have less human interaction uh, is what I would say from a QC standpoint. And then you're able to go back and essentially go to the workers or to the robots and adjust them and say, hey, this is, this is good and this is bad based on the feedback you got. So it becomes this Kind of closed loop feedback is that? Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, how come the you know the people who were building these QC systems and systems before didn't didn't just bring in AI? It seems like they own the hardware and they have to have some software. So, so why didn't they just do this? Where, where does your company fit in this? How did you see this as an opportunity? Did they come to you and you're selling? To them, or did the manufacturing, did you just see that yield needed to be better? What drove this from a business standpoint?
4: Sure. So, machine-vision machine companies, you know, they are primarily uh, camera hardware companies. So, they manufacture the cameras, They build those cameras specifically. So, for them to adopt to a new technology and infuse that into the cameras, it's not going to be a straightaway easy thing because their business, you know, they're doing $900 million of revenue only from the cameras, Right. So they cannot go on the, uh, you know, ad- adopt to a ca- AI business, you know, with the cameras. It's not possible because the cameras only take can take the old technology. And AI, you know, with the deep learning, it needs much more uh, powerful hardware than the cameras that they already have. So it's not going to be easy to fit in AI into their camera ecosystem. So they needed to have separate software. And that's why they were not encouraging encouraged to, you know, change the technology and give a different solution. So they were only going with the conventional cameras and conventional system, but now, you know, I'm talking about this, you know, three years, four years back when we started off. But now they have acquired some of our AI companies and they are actually trying to compete with uh, in the AI space. But since they are not built in-grown and um, you know, if it's, it's, they have acquired some other company, it's not a product which is built from ground up. So it's basically, you know, they have built as a product and they went to a customer and that's how they've gone. So. What we have done is, we have actually, since we are a software-centric company, and uh, we can work with any kind of a hardware. So this opens up for the customer, any manufacturer. Actually, it helps them to go with a lower-cost hardware. You know, We have used even $100 cameras compared to $10,000 camera in Machine Vision. So we use $100 cameras. So if it's a static environment, you don't need an expensive camera at all. So they can go with multiple cameras. And inspect multiple products in one go, and reduce their turnaround time to inspect the product. So this is the benefit they get out of end. So
3: do you see this as like democratizing the 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 overall industry, lowering the cost, making you know making manufacturing more efficient. And is that is that what your business model is going forward, increasing the efficiency at a low cost, or what what are the top you know three poles that you guys pull to to be able to get people to make this investment? Because I'm sure there's a higher investment for a company to employ AI than if they were just to, you know, use other means like uh, like machine vision, or maybe you're still trying to get people to come off of the human uh, QA uh, testing. And what industry, and the second part of that question is, what industries will take advantage of this first, do you think?
4: Yeah, sure. So, you know, you just basically, you know, The focus of our product or platform, I would call, is primarily to reduce the cost or democratize, as you said, to uh, in the the manufacturing industry. So we want to keep the cost low by using off the shelf cameras, and it's only our software licensing costs, which we charge in yearly recurring revenue, and then uh, computer hardware. That's all they need to get started. And uh, in some cases, we can use even the normal mobile phone on the floor if they have to scan some barcode or QR code before they send off the products out to their customers so we give that mobility so they don't have to buy a specific camera for that they can use their existing hardware and we also use drones that sometimes you know for taking inventory of uh, the warehouse basically so those are the uh, benefits we give using the third-party cameras and uh, when it comes to you know who are going to be the early adopters for this so we started with automotive manufacturers because they had the biggest problem because they had to Produce a lot, and um, they had to give it to their customers quickly. So this helps. And then the electronics manufacturers, all the circuit board printed circuit boards, you know, you, you'd have heard now there's a big uh, sh- uh, supply, short supply in the chips. Chip
3: shortage. Short. So
4: yeah. So it, it's going to really help that industry as well to get the products going. And one of the reasons why the shortage happens is like I was talking to a San Jose based uh, electronics manufacturer, contract manufacturer. He actually said no to a NASA contract of about 3 to $4 million. So the reason why he wow. said that is because the Mission Vision, which was inspecting his uh, circuit boards, and after, you know, the uh, machine actually inspects, he had a manual employee looking at each and every part of this circuit board to see if there is any defect. This was, you know, slowing down his uh, productivity. It became like, a, you know, imagine like a 20-lane highway in his production, and then two lane highway on a you know, quality inspection. That was a scenario for him. So, because of which he was scared that he was not able, if, he, if he's not able to fulfill the NASA's contract, he might get blacklisted and he may not be able to supply to anybody. So, that's the reason he said no to a big contract every year that he was supposed to get. So, the reason you know, why this happens is because of a you know, l- low um, uh, false rate, basically, or a high false rate. So with this, you know AI approach you now we are able to eliminate that uh, need of a additional person looking at all the boats So that person can be effectively used in other departments. So now this gets completely automated, and um, the production is completely, you know, matching the you know inspection. Both both are matching each other. So there is no bottleneck for them. So that is why electronics is another adopter, quick adopter of our solutions, basically. But other yeah. conventional manufacturing also is catching up. Right, And
3: one last question on that and, and taking a little of the business side away from that is that it seems like you've got a pretty big sales or business development goal ahead of you because you have to go to the individual companies that have the product lines rather than the people who manufacture the robots, right? But you have to have an ecosystem for them. So you're doing outreach mostly to the countries where most of the manufacturing is done. Is that the way you're doing it or are you going to specific? People they they use these robots. Therefore, I'm going to go to those customers. Well, how what's your approach there? Or all so these
4: first thing is yes, yeah, sure. Um, we actually need we don't need a robot to be there in every customer place. So we help them with a the simple automation as well without the robots also. So that's the first uh, first thing there. And in terms of uh, who we are going to as a customer, we have a, a global customers now. Like we are already serving to a 12 plus locations globally. That includes U.S., Europe, and uh, other Asian countries as well. So we are, are doing everywhere. And uh, in terms of, uh, uh, yeah, I think I answered your uh, main questions there. So a lot of people are calling
1: in and asking, how did you get your first customer, and how did you decide to? And it all, and two, so one is how did you get your first customer? And two is it sounds to me like it's a lot of money and, and very expensive to do all that coding before you got that first customer. So, I mean, did you save your pennies? How
4: are we able to do that? So, actually, we, uh, we worked with uh, the industry partners. So, like, you know, once we uh, went about with the various manufacturers, identified uh, what's the challenge, uh, we started working with one uh, customer. So, we told them that, you know, we will give you this, you know, uh, results of whatever we do the research work, and uh, we would love to start with your company and we, we offered them like a beta cost where uh, we said uh, we will not charge you till the product works fine and then um, you can have uh, the product to be used for a certain milestone. Like we said, like once we go live from then six months, you can use it for free of cost and then you can, after that, you can pay us. So they agreed for that because they, they also had a compelling problem to uh, solve. So they accepted our offer and uh, they gave us an opportunity. To work with them, and uh, it was a automotive manufacturer, and uh, we started working on their on their floor. We went entered with our team there. We set up our systems there, and we started working on their floor right in their uh, with their own product. And that's where we had a lot of learnings, and uh, which is what I really, you know, uh, definitely recommend all the entrepreneurs to do, so that they can understand the feel of what actually your customers go through, and understand uh, how you can overcome that. So that's where the User experience point of view comes in because you know who are the people who are going to actually use the product, who's your users, and what is, what do they expect. All of these learnings can be there as a practical way as you learn from those customers. So that's the opportunity we got, and we actually built the product on the floor. And uh, once we rolled out, this uh, customer was very happy, and he actually introduced us, introduced us to his own uh, network of people, and we started only growing with uh, word of mouth, only referrals actually was the uh, way out for us. And then we started working with various uh, partners like robotic guys uh, who are producing robots, who are in, installing robots, and then automation guys in the factory floor, a lot of automation guys are there who, who are doing that. So we partnered with them, and uh, they used to give us the, and uh, that's how we started growing. Uh, the second part of
1: that question was when is to the capital investment that you would need to build this product, right? So, I mean, or, or I guess it's a service, since it's software, right? Um, I would think that takes many, many hours to build it, and many many labor and costs so how did you do that because what if you build a product and then you know you only have one customer it's not really feasible it's only feasible when you have multiple customers
4: yeah sure so initially we um uh, you know we we sacrificed as uh, uh, founders so we didn't take any pay for almost six months uh, nothing absolutely and then we were only building the product so it was only between me and my co-founder we started that and uh, we actually started getting some traction built uh, with that. So yeah, after six months, you know, we started doing some revenue and uh, we hired few people and then we were paying the uh, guys from those uh, money that we raised from our customers. So we told these guys that we cannot pay you like an industry standard. We gave them uh, some some equity to be part of our team and uh, grow with us. And once we had the traction built, then we went to some of the early stage investors and also accelerators who could uh, understand our Market and um, they liked our product and they put in two fifty k for us.
1: You mentioned a co founder and uh, we haven't used his name, so could you introduce her to the co founder? Um, her name
4: is uh, Ritika. He actually is my co founder. And what's his last name? Ritika Nigam.
3: How long have you known her, Rashish? Did you guys work together before or did you just come together for this project?
4: Uh, no, fortunately, we we worked before uh, with couple of other use cases. So this is my fourth venture. I have done three uses before this. So in um, uh, one of my companies, she she came in as a consultant for us. Uh, she helped us to put together a few things, and she was technically very sound. And she was she helped us to build a product, and um, that's when we met. And before that, actually, we were looking for some consultant to help us out on a technical work. So we. We sent out to, you know, friends and we sent it in uh, some of the entrepreneurial groups that we are looking for somebody to, you know, help us on the consulting group. So she found us and she came to our office and we met and uh, we told the problem statement and she said she can get going. And uh, uh, that's how we met and uh, that's how we got together. Well,
1: what was the time frame from the time you guys, met and decided to do something like this
4: before you actually had a product that you were able to sell? So the first product uh, upline took us about 12 months to build the product. And uh, after that, another 12 months for a stable platform to be ready. But initial 12 months, we didn't make much of a revenue because we were building the product. And after that, uh, we started making revenue. So once we released our first product, we started making uh, revenue. And then we started working on making the product better and we launched our platform last year.
3: Are you actually optimizing the product on site? So if you have a customer or doing it remotely, if you have a customer and they, they say to you, okay, I've got this, um, I've got this, this product you know, running, but I'm not sure I'm getting the results I want, do you optimize it or just go, well, just let it learn, and, and it'll do it on its own? Or how do you guys handle that?
4: Yeah, sure. So we actually, once we deploy initially, we give a one, one week of staging, we do that typically. In that staging, we identify how effective the model is. So whatever we have to know, you know, if the product is, I mean, the product is working fine or not, we will know in that one week's time. So that's the uh, learnings in the past uh, couple of years that we have been deploying. So within that one week period, we will catch those um, irregularities or false calls, basically. False calls is the biggest concern there. So that's what we look for in this one week of staging. And once we figure that, you know, what it is, and once we fix it, and after that, there is no looking back. So... As AI, as I say, AI actually has its own intelligence, and that's as the day progresses, it gets keeps getting better. So it's never going to, you know, go bad. Is there a platform that you guys use for your AI, or do
1: you is this a self built one? I mean, like you're using like Watson or something, or you do have your own
4: platform that you base it off of? So in terms of product, it's, it's our own. We filed two patents so far. It's our own uh, complete uh, product that we built, and uh, there is no. It's a native coding that we have done. And uh, in terms of deployment, yes, we can deploy it on any platform. Like we have containerized our uh, product, so it can be deployed on a Linux or a you know Windows machine. Or if it's a cloud, we can we have actually tested with AWS, Azure, and uh, the Kubernetes and Google Cloud. What
1: about Linux or, or or other languages?
4: Yeah, so Linux also we have tested yeah. it works. Linux or Windows, it works.
1: Yes yeah. because that's open source, right? So yeah. uh, we're coming to the end of the show. Uh, people want to get more information from you, they go to, what's, what's your uh, lincode.a? No,
3: .dot Yeah.
1: Okay. L-I-N.
3: Lin. Yeah.
1: Okay. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Aspire Radio Show, KHS 1220, 98.1 FM. We'll see you next week. Thank you very much.